As it relates to our incomes, we produce food cheaper than any other country in the world, yet we have the highest health care. We believe there's a direct correlation with the way that we've, we've been farming for the last 50 years and the health or the lack thereof of our nation. And what we're ultimately trying to do is to rebuild that soil using the information that was available from 100 years ago, but trying to tie technology to that today. It's just unbelievable, the difference. The good news is, is that we can turn this around. Welcome to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast, where we meet the world's top experts to explore the secrets of health, mindset, longevity, and so much more. Are you ready? To take charge of your existence and biohack your life, this show is for you. Please keep in mind, we're not dispensing medical advice and are not responsible for any outcomes you may experience from implementing the tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Oh my goodness, friends today's episode, I cannot express how happy it makes me. When I read Farmer Lee Jones's book, it was so eye-opening. I learned so much about plants, about regenerative agriculture, about just how much farming practices affect nutrients and flavor in food. But I did not anticipate how incredible of a figure Farmer Lee Jones himself is. Wow, I was just smiling so much during this episode. His energy is infectious. He's truly doing incredible things, and I think you guys will love this episode. The show notes for today's episode will be at melanieavalon.com slash Farmer Lee Jones. Those show notes will have a full transcript, so definitely check that out. There will be two episode giveaways for this episode. One will be in my Facebook group, IF Biohackers, Intermittent Fasting plus Real Foods plus Life. Comment something you learned or something that resonated with you on the pinned post to enter to win something that I love. And then check out my Instagram, Melanie Avalon. Also find the announcement post there about this episode and again, enter to win something that I love. I have a very exciting announcement, friends. I have officially launched a TikTok channel. I've been on Instagram for a while, but it is time for TikTok. And with the channel, I'm going to be posting daily, very high quality, awesome biohacking content, tips and tricks, things from my life. And I really want to bring the glam to biohacking because I feel like biohacking can be very male-centric or focused on a certain type of person. And I just want to break that stereotype and bring all the sparkles. So please join me there. My handle is Melanie Avalon Official. Please let me know what you'd like to see from me, what you think of the content. I do feel pretty shy about it. So please join me so that we can be friends and just go on the most epic biohacking adventure. Okay, friends, Spirulina update. It is still coming. I know it's been taking a while. It's just because I want to make the most ideal Spirulina tablets on the market, ones that are tested for purity and potency and to be free of all pesticides and just the highest quality. So we've got that Spirulina source. It tastes awesome. The issue we're experiencing is that in order to make it into tablets, it requires another ingredient. If you're currently taking Spirulina tablets and they say they are one ingredient, they are not one ingredient. There is something in there that is helping to keep that structure. So we're trying to figure out which route to go with this. It's really fun because I keep trying different samples. I think I know which one I like the most, but we'll see which one I end up picking. Either way, I really love the taste of our spirulina. It doesn't taste fishy or LGE, and I really experience the benefits. So stay tuned for that. In the meantime, you can get my other Avalon X supplements at avalonx.us. Friends, have you jumped on the serapeptase bandwagon yet? 
That's what I launched with, and to this day, it continues to be my most favorite supplement ever. It's a proteolytic enzyme created by the Japanese silkworm. When you take it in the fasted state, it actually breaks down non-living problematic proteins in your body, so it can help address an array of issues. Like I said, it will clear your sinuses, calm inflammation, It may help reduce cholesterol. Studies have shown it can break down amyloid plaque. It can help alleviate pain and so much more. I take it daily. It is one of the most important supplements in my arsenal. This is the new year. Start it off right. Get some serapeptase. You can get 10% off with the coupon code MELANIEAVALON, as well as a 20% off code when you text AVALONX to 877-861-8318. That's AVALONX to 877-861-8318. Those codes will also work with my fantastic partner, MD Logic Health. For that, go to melanieavalon.com slash mdlogic. And of course, all of my supplements I formulated to be the very best on the market. They're tested multiple times for heavy metals and mold. They're free of all common allergens as well as problematic fillers, which goes back to that whole spirulina formulation issue I was talking about. They come in glass bottles to help prevent leaching of plastics into ourselves and the environment. And we even use the minimal amount of stickiness required for the labels to help with our environmental impact. To get these fantastic products, go to avalonx.us and definitely get on my email list so that you don't miss the Spirulina launch special. For that, go to avalonx.us slash email list. Another resource for you guys If you struggle with food sensitivities like I do, you have got to get my app, Food Sense Guide. It's a comprehensive catalog of over 300 foods for 11 potentially problematic compounds. These include things you may be reacting to, like gluten, lectins, FODMAPs, histamine, oxalates, sulfites, thiols, whether or not something is a nightshade, and so much more. It even includes autoimmune paleo AIP status. You can learn about the compounds, create your own list to share and print, and finally take charge of your food sensitivities. It is a top Apple app, often in the top 10 for the Apple food and drinks charts. And friends, get it now because I'm going to be updating it to a subscription basis soon. So you definitely want to get grandfathered in for life at one super low price. With the subscriptions, by the way, I'm going to be implementing some pretty cool features. So I need to do subscriptions to help support that. So like I said, get it now before we change to subscriptions. You can get it at melanieavalon.com slash foodsenseguide. And one more thing before we jump in. Did you know there are over a thousand compounds found in conventional skincare and makeup in the U.S. that have been banned in Europe due to their toxicity? If you are using conventional skincare and makeup, you are directly putting into your bloodstream toxic compounds, including obesogens, which can literally cause your body to store and gain weight. So if your diet's not working, you might want to think about what's happening with your skincare and makeup, as well as carcinogens linked to cancer. I'm not making this up. And just endocrine disruptors in general, which mess with our hormones. Thankfully, there's an easy solution to this. There's a company called Beauty Counter, and they were founded on a mission to change this. Every single ingredient is extensively tested to be safe for your skin, so you can truly feel good about what you put on, and their products really work. I am obsessed with their overnight resurfacing peel, their vitamin C serum, they have shampoo and conditioner, skincare lines for every skin type, and incredible makeup. It's so amazing that Tina Fey actually wore all beauty counter makeup when she hosted the Golden Globes. So yes, it is high definition camera ready. You can shop with me at beautycounter.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code clean for all 20 to get 20% off site-wide. 
You can get the latest updates from me, specials, sales, samples, and so much more on my email list. That's at melanieavalon.com slash clean beauty. And you can join me in my Facebook group, clean beauty and safe skincare with Melanie Avalon. People share product reviews and their experiences. And I do a giveaway every single week in that group as well. And lastly, if you're thinking of making clean beauty and safe skincare a part of your future, like I have, I definitely recommend becoming a band of beauty member. It's sort of like the Amazon prime for clean beauty. You get 10 percent back in product credit, free shipping on qualifying orders, and a welcome gift that is worth way more than the price of the year-long membership. It is totally completely worth it. And I'll put all this information in the show notes. An important announcement, friends. My EMF blocking products are coming. Make sure you don't miss the launch special. For that, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list. EMFs are actually classified by the IARC as a group 2B, possibly carcinogenic to humans. These are such a problem. We are exposed to them through our Wi-Fi, our cell phones, our AirPods, And they are linked to so many health issues, including anxiety, migraines, headaches, even fertility issues. This is such a problem. Thankfully, you can address your EMF exposure. I'm going to help with that with my Avalon X EMF blocking product line. So again, get on my email list at melanieavalon.com slash EMF email list to check that out. All right, without further ado, please enjoy this wonderful conversation with Farmer Lee Jones. Hi friends, welcome back to the show. I am so incredibly excited about the conversation that I am about to have. Friends, I read a lot of books every single year, especially for this show. And the book that we're going to talk about today, and it's not just about the book, today's episode, but it is honestly one of the most beautiful, enlightening, incredible life-changing books I've ever read. I think it should be required reading for kids like in elementary school or middle school just to learn all about the incredible wonder of farming and food and all of the different types of vegetables and produce. And I feel like it gave me an entire new understanding of our food and our connection to it. So I am here today with Farmer Lee Jones. He is a legend. The book that I'm talking about is The Chef's Garden, A Modern Guide to Common and Unusual Vegetables with Recipes. Farmer Lee Jones is, he's just a legend in the regenerative agriculture sphere. He runs the Culinary Vegetable Institute. And you guys have probably seen him because he's been everywhere. He's been in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, Inc. Magazine. He was actually the first farmer ever on the Food Network show as a judge on um, Iron Chef America. He's been on the Food Network, Martha Stewart stuff. He was actually the answer to a Jeopardy question. Yeah. So today's, I'm just so looking forward to this conversation. I have so many questions, but first of all, Farmer Lee Jones, thank you so much for being here. Oh my gosh. Thanks for having me on. I'm really excited about it. So I'm super excited to ask you, this is always the first question I ask the guests, but you talk about your history in the book. And we were just talking before this about, you know, 40 years in the making in a way, this book. But I'm so excited to hear your story from you because it's incredible. So for listeners who are not familiar, what got you to what you're doing today? Were you always doing farming? What made you interested in the way that you approach it now? What's your story? I know that's a big question. You know, I think part of why we are who we are is where we're at. 
and we're in an amazing microclimate. We're right along Lake Erie in Ohio, in a little town called Huron, Ohio, H-U-R-O-N. And it's right on Lake Erie. Lake Erie is the shallowest of all the Great Lakes. Consequently, it's the warmest. And there's an amazing microclimate right along the ridge of Lake Erie, all the way up into Conneaut and near Buffalo. Because it's the shallowest, it's the warmest, and it provides an amazing microclimate. European settlers came here and recognized this amazing growing area. It was huge in grapes even before Napa Valley. But vegetable growers came here. And if you can think about it, it's so easy for us today to get on a highway and be four or five hours and be three or 400 miles across the country pretty easily. But back going into like the 30s or the 40s, Roads and refrigeration had not developed to the point where there was a lot of outside competition. So it was really more of a regional distribution system in America. And more similar to what we like and hear about Europe, where we go every day and get our bread and our poultry and our vegetables and our fruit. And that was really more of a similar system. But the farmers, and we understand it peaked in about 1930 with 330 vegetable growers in Erie County. One of the largest, if not the largest concentrations of vegetable growers anywhere in the world in one county, all small, what they would have called truck farmers, and they would harvest their vegetables and take them in to farmer's markets. Entirely different than what we think of as a farmer's market today, where we go on a Saturday morning or we go on a Wednesday morning and we meet the farmer, we buy. The farmer's markets were consisting, the customers consisted of hundreds of family-owned grocery stores. And one of the things that makes the Cleveland area, and we're only about 50 miles outside of Cleveland, Ohio, is the rich diversity in ethnicity. And it's amazing because you've got Jewish, Slovakian, Hungarian, you've got all of these just different ethnicities, and every one of them with different likes and tastes and nuances to what they like to eat. And so the farmers really could grow specifically for those grocery stores. And that was really quite an active market. And they would take their vegetables in and they would sell them to the grocery store buyers. It was really kind of a neat model. Hard work, but it was a regional distribution system. As roads and refrigeration continued to improve, one by one, the small grocery stores were pushed out because larger scale chain grocery stores that had 400 stores or 1,400 stores. And one by one, the small family farms were pushed out. My dad at 14 years old went to work for a guy that kind of recognized the competition coming. And so he worked cooperatively with about 65 other growers from our area. And dad went to work for him at 14. Mr. Nichols had invested in hydrocooling, packaging, palletization, trucking, shipping, and they were able to compete for several years. My dad ultimately bought that farm from him and had some very good years. But ultimately, probably a lot of the listeners are too young to remember, but in the late 70s and early 80s, the interest rates actually hit 22%. They're about 3%, 3.5% today. So the economy got turned upside down in the late 70s, early 80s. I was 19 at the time. We had a devastating hailstorm that came in, and it literally wiped out all of the crops. And the banks were closed. At 19, I stood shoulder to shoulder with my mom and dad, my brother and sister, all of our neighbors, all of our competitors, everybody that was there to celebrate our failure. And they auctioned every tractor off, every piece of equipment off. 
the farm off and my mother's car and our house. And we literally crawled away from that. This is not a rags to riches story by any stretch of the imagination. We were following the model that the universities were promoting. And the, of course, the pharmaceutical companies and the chemical companies. And Earl Butts, the Secretary of Agriculture at the time, his message to farmers was to get big or to get out. And here's the chemicals you can use to control the weeds, and you can use synthetic fertilizers to feed the plants, and we can increase the yields. Agriculture was really driving the economic engine in America in that period of time. And so everything was about expansion and producing more tons per acre. And it never really resonated very well with my dad because he remembered a time in the 30s and the 40s when a large farm was 100 acres, because that's about all that one family could manage. A third of that was in cover crops. A third of it was in pasture to feed the animals. And a third of it was in production. And then they rotated that. And so they were constantly rebuilding the soil. And we got away from that. We, we went to chemical control of weeds. We went to synthetic fertilizers. Instead of letting the land sit fallow, we planted it. We could fake the crops out with synthetic fertilizers. We could increase the yields, more tons per acre. Ultimately, that didn't work, and ultimately it's not working for the country or the world today. As it relates to our incomes, we produce food cheaper than any other country in the world, yet we have the highest health care. We have a 3,000% increase in kidney, liver, heart, cancer disease, attention deficit disorder, autism, childhood obesity, allergies, diabetes. We believe there's a direct correlation with the way that we've, we've been farming for the last 50 years and the health or the lack thereof of our nation. And so by losing the farm, as devastating as it was, it gave us an opportunity to relook what we were doing. And we went back to old agricultural books. What's amazing is, is that in the last 50 or 60 years, the nutritional levels have gone down from 1930 to 2020. The nutritional levels have gone down by 50%, and they're continuing to go down at an increasing rate. In vegetables that are consumed and grown in America, they've gone down by 50% and continuing to go down at an increasing rate. It should be alarming for everybody that's listening. In the meantime, the yields go up and the nutritional levels go down. That's kind of scary. So we started looking back. Why were they, 100 years ago, able to produce vegetables that were 50% more nutritious than we are today? With all the technology and with all the brilliant minds that we have, we're producing vegetables with 50% less nutrition. So going back and looking at the way that they were rebuilding soil really made sense. And what we're ultimately trying to do is to rebuild that soil using the information that was available from 100 years ago, but trying to tie technology to that today. We started back over, after we had lost the farm, we started back over with six acres, and we had a lady that, she was a chef. Her name was Iris Balin. She's now Iris Brody today. She had trained in Europe, and she came and found us at a farmer's market, because when we lost the farm, we started back over with the six acres at a farmer's market. And she said, you know, I've been to Europe. I really believe that if you would grow for the flavor, grow it without chemical, grow it for the, the flavor, flavor kept coming up. If you would grow it for the flavor, grow for the varieties and select the varieties for flavor rather than the tons per acre. She believed that there would be enough chefs to support us. 
And we grabbed around both of her ankles and we wouldn't let her go. And we said, okay, teach us. And she pulled out, we made arrangements to come and visit with her in Cleveland one day. And she had books spread all out over the conference table of radicios and all kinds of things being grown in Italy and Europe and white asparagus. And so we really started focusing on the top end of the market. We were very fortunate that folks like Jean-Louis Paladin at the Watergate Hotel in D.C., Michel Richard, Thomas Keller, Charlie Trotter, Danielle Ballou, St. Regis's, Ritz-Carlton's, Four Seasons, and we really started growing for the top end of the market. And the thing that kept resonating with those chefs that we worked with, and we've been so fortunate that those chefs have taken us in under their wing over the last 40 years, was flavor, 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 but do it naturally rather than chemically. As we were growing for flavor, we had a hypothesis that we were probably moving the nutritional levels along with that. And my dad was really instrumental in pushing this. We put in a lab on the farm where we could actually test the results of what we were doing. Ultimately, this comes down to soil, finding out what we were doing, how we could affect the health of the soil. We believe that all health comes, all good health comes from the health of the soil. And so what's really cool is, is that just like if you guys were to go and get blood work drawn and you get a par level on all your minerals and finding out what you're deficient in, what's really cool is, is that based on the deficiencies that we find in the mineral levels in the soil, you know how we jokingly talk about, oh, I need some vitamin D. I'm going to go out in the sunshine and collect some vitamin D. Well, there's so much more truth to that than people even understand. And what's really amazing is, is that when we find out what those deficiencies are and know that different types of plants will harvest different types of energy from the sun. So it could be clover, alfalfa, buckwheat, vetch, rye. We have a 15 species planting that will plant into the soil. Half of our acreage in any one year is committed to harvesting the sun's energy. And it's unbelievable how the soil will respond to harvesting that energy. And then when we plant the turnip or the beet or the carrot or the radish or the spinach or whatever it is we want to consume into that ground, it picks that back up. And when we eat it, it builds our immune system. We kind of look at it like the Eastern culture versus the Western culture. The Western culture in medicine is you get a strep throat, they give you a penicillin, a moxicillin, a viacillin. It's always treating a symptom, right? Where... The Eastern culture is get the body in balance, defend against the disease in the first place. And so we're actually farming that way. 50% of the acreage in any, in any one year on the farm is committed to harvesting the sun's energy. We're seeing numbers as high as 300 to 500 times higher than the USDA average. Now, the USDA average is too low, but we're seeing numbers in many cases as high as 300 to 500% higher. Now, do we have it all figured out? No but we're on the right track. And what's really cool is, you know, where we're getting in trouble when we're using the synthetics and the chemicals, particularly using genetically modified plants, they genetically modify the plant so it can withstand the chemical. So when that farmer plants, and I'm not trying to talk down about those farmers, they're stuck in a system that says, keep the cost of goods as low as possible and produce as many tons per acre as you can, and you might stay in business. So, they're stuck in this model that exists in America to keep costs low, produce a lot. We got off of that bandwagon. And so the goal for us is to be able to, to produce the, the most flavorful, most nutritious vegetable that we can.
it's pretty exciting. We're seeing these numbers and seeing the results of this. I think that, you know, as we move forward, plant-based, plant-forward is the future for sustainability of society. So it's exciting. We've, we just recently, in, in the last two weeks, brought on board on the team a doctor from Mayo Clinic who has, she has spent her entire life on the plant-based and the holistic side. And we're really trying to emerge into a healthy lifestyle living where folks can be able to get vegetables directly at home. 40, for 40 years, 100% of our business was direct to restaurants. You can imagine what might have happened and what did happen when the restaurants closed down during the middle of the pandemic or at the beginning of the pandemic. And our team was like, oh, man, what are we going to do? And so we pivoted to a home delivery to be able to get vegetables to individuals at home. Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th annual biohacking conference, May 30th through June 1st in Dallas, Texas. And of course, I have a massive discount code for you guys. I went last year to the one in Orlando and it was one of the most fun times of my entire life. I met and got to hang out with so many guests that I've had on the show. I met so many of you guys. And of course, there's lots of Danger Coffee and Dave Asprey approved meals and dry farm wines. And that's just the social aspect. The conference itself is mind-blowing. They have this incredible expo where they have all the biohacking supplements, all the biohacking things. You can learn about them, try samples meet the creators and founders. If you haven't tried a lot of biohacking things, it's a great chance to actually try them out in person. Things like brain tap, infrared sauna, hyperbaric oxygen chambers, and so much more. There are so many incredible speakers as well. You can hear talks from people I've had on the show like Paul Saladino, Dr. Daniel Amen, Dr. Sarah Gottfried, Dr. Mercola, Dr. Annika Becca, and that is just a few of them. I seriously had the time of my life last year, and I would love to hang out with you guys. And you can get 35% off tickets. Just go to melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference and use the coupon code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. That's melanieavalon.com slash biohackingconference with the code BCMelanie to get 35% off your tickets. This code can be used for general admission or for VIP access. Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash biohacking conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Okay. I am smiling so much right now. This is absolutely incredible. So I'm wondering in a parallel universe, so you're talking about what happened with the seventies and then this, you know, change to the more conventional system that we have today. Do you see a way that could have gone differently? And I, I think it's an important question because it could speak to the implications for the future, but just as far as that switch that happened I'm guessing it created a lot more food, a lot more access to feed the population. Is that required to feed a growing population? Like, could it have manifested any differently where we are doing what you're doing now, but on the large scale? I think so. You know, we'll never know. I know that we can affect the future. We can learn from the past. We can't change that. I do know that there were a lot of things that entered in, you know, in World War II, and it was gender specific at that time. The men were off fighting in wars. And Moms were at home tending the family, taking care of the household chores, and taking care of the children. 
And today, it doesn't matter which gender it is that's at home, but at that time, that's the way it was. But it became all hands on deck. And the moms were tasked then with welding and building submarines and machine guns and army tanks. And what happened was, was that America recognized that we could become, after the war was over, we recognized we could be a two-income household. And so mom and dad were both building careers, both out in the workforce. And so marketing, large corporations recognized another gap that they could emerge into. And, and I don't know if you remember the frozen TV dinners, the nasty Salisbury steak and instant mashed potatoes and the frozen peas and carrots. My mother thought that those were just wonderful because she was working away from the house and she could pop those out and they were terrible. Now, my grandmother would have never dreamed of cooking something like that. She wouldn't even have thought of bringing it into the house. But, but mom's generation was looking for convenience. And, and it allowed for us to change from our focus of where our food sources were coming from and a connection with the farmer. And we lost that. Had it gone out different? Had we played it differently? Absolutely, I think that we could have a different result. A 3,000% increase in those diseases. I would be willing to bet, I won't bet the farm, but I'd, I'd bet you a nice unsweetened iced tea that there isn't anybody listening that doesn't have somebody in their family or immediate circle of friends that doesn't suffer from one or more of those diseases. A 3,000% increase in 50 years, it's not sustainable. We're headed for a train wreck. I think that the younger generation is recognizing some of our mistakes and saying, wait a minute, I want to know where my food is coming from. I want to know how it's grown. I want to know how the people are being taken care of on those farms. We have a saying, healthy soil, healthy vegetables, healthy people, healthy environment. And that's really the crux of what we're trying to do here on the farm. There are 156 families that are involved in farming on 350 acres. 350 acres, half of that acreage in any one year is committed to harvesting the sun's energy. So it's about a person per acre, 150 people, about 150 to 175 acres. It's very labor intensive what we're doing, but we're doing it, trying to do it the right way. We're trying to be cognizant of our carbon footprint. We're trying to be cognizant. And I think the book alludes to, you know, we've been... I don't know what the right word is, just pushed, again, by the marketing of billions of dollars from big corporations that things can only be a certain size or a vegetable, we only eat a part of it. If you think about the majestic nature of a Brussels sprout, Melanie, have you ever grown a Brussels sprout plant? Well, they're just an absolutely beautiful plant. They grow to about four to four and a half feet tall. It takes nine to 10 months to grow them. And they're a beautiful plant and they've got all these leaves they're on stalks, right? Like a big stalk. I've seen it on the... Yeah, they're on a big stalk, and it's almost as big around as your wrist. And it grows up to four and a half, five feet tall, and you have all these beautiful leaves that come out, and those leaves are there to protect. They provide a canopy to protect the Brussels sprout from being sunburned. Nature just has an amazing way of, of, harvest, of taking care of itself. But so all we do is we pick that Brussels sprout off, and that's what we eat. But all this energy, all the love, all the nutrients, all the water have gone to produce this plant. I would defy the listeners that they probably would not be able to tell the difference if they were blindfolded between a Brussels sprout leaf and a collard leaf. And so we can utilize more of the plant. What better way to give reverence and to respect to that plant than to use the entire plant and reduce the waste? 
You talk about in the book the blooming rutabaga incident and when you realized that you could use the the plants at every stage. And I was wondering, like, why do certain parts of plants become the part that we eat, like just in general? I think that, you know, it, it becomes one of efficiency and marketing. And, you know, if we're growing that in our own garden, I think that perhaps we look at that plant in a little different way. And chefs have taught us over the years to look at the plant Outside of the box, just because this isn't the norm doesn't mean, you know, when it shoots a seed stalk, a lot of times we think that it's gone to waste and that we can't use it. And we had a chef that actually, I was taking him back to show him a field and my brother was plowing it down because we thought that the, once it shot the seed stalk, the field was done and we were going to have to plow it under and start over. And he jumps out, out of the truck and runs in front of the tractor, flags the tractor down. And my brother was driving the tractor and Bob got off of the tractor and I got out of the truck and we got down on our knees and we're looking at this plant and he starts tasting it and looking at the seed pod and the flowers. And he's like, do you have any idea what I can do with this on the plate? So what we've learned effectively from chefs is that at every single stage of the plant's life, it offers something unique to the plant or to the plate. So I grow cucumbers hydroponically in my apartment. Like I was getting rid of the old plant because I needed to replant it. And I pulled out like the whole root system and I was like, oh, I wonder if I could <laughs> if I could eat these roots. Like I was just thinking about how it's just so interesting that we focus on certain parts of plants and not others. So another question about just the sourcing of plants. So I'm really curious, like in the US, for example, or any country really, how much of the different plants that we're exposed to are actually native to like the land? Like is the majority of stuff grown now in the U.S.? Was it ultimately from somewhere else? And how does that all come to be? Yeah, I think that it is ultimately because, I mean, which one of us is not an immigrant to America? I mean, we're all immigrants. It's just that some of us immigrated a little earlier than others. And I think that's, again, part of what makes America great. But people brought seeds with them or they remember foods that they ate in their home countries. And so if it's if it's able to be grown here, then we're going to grow it. And I think that's why we have 700 different crops that we grow. And of course, we're always sourcing from another country. I think that it's been kind of exciting to see chefs that certainly want to cook regionally, but also it's fun to be able to see a chef that's bringing part of their heritage with them. If it's Native American or Italian or Caribbean or wherever, Thai, and they bring things that they remember from their home country here and it influences their cuisine. I love to go to a restaurant where the chef's home country has been influenced or that that chef has gone someplace and traveled and found something there that they really love and they can bring it here. And I think there's There's a lot of things that can be grown here. There's a great company. It's a not-for-profit called Seed Savers Exchange in Decorah, Iowa, Dr. Kent Waitley. And he has done more to preserve old heirloom varieties than anybody else that I know in the world. It's a great program to support. Again, a not-for-profit, but they'll preserve old varieties that have been handed down. Let's say that, where was your great-grandparents from, Melanie? Germany and Ireland, depending on the side of the family, but Germany most closely. Yeah. So if it would have been some, a seed, a potato that had been handed down from generation to generation, and you wanted to preserve that, you could share those seeds with the Seed Savers Exchange. And then somebody else could write a letter and 
and ask for some of those seeds. The only way we save these old varieties is to use them and create a demand. It's kind of like they did with the heritage turkeys and the heritage chickens. And the same thing has to happen with the vegetables. It's incredible. So the heirloom seeds, because I know when I go look at seeds, like at the store, there are a lot of heirloom varieties. Are they automatically naturally more nutrient dense? Not necessarily. No. I think that they they can certainly affect flavor. I think that it's is is critical of the soil. It ultimately starts. I mean, it's just like our body. What we feed our body is going to determine how healthy we are. What what you eat is what you are. And what the plant eats is what you are. I think that it's really critical. Ultimately, it's got to go back to the health of the soil. That's really, really fundamental in our health. We've had several doctors here over the years, and they look at what we're doing and the way we're looking at plants and breaking them down and measuring the nutrient-nutrient density, the nitrate oxides, the gut biome. All of these things factor in, but it ultimately comes back to the health of the soil. Healthy soil, healthy vegetables, healthy people, healthy environment. And it's pretty amazing. You know, when we're, I think I got off track a little bit earlier, we were talking about when, when companies are using, farms are using genetically modified seeds. It, it genetically modifies the seed. So when they spray the chemical on, it kills the weeds that compete for light and for moisture and for yield. But it also is killing all the biology in the soil. So then when they're using synthetic fertilizers, the biology is not there to break the, the uh, fertilizer down into a form that the plant can pick it up. And that's why we're getting, I don't know if you've read about it, but we have a lot of issues with algal bloom in the Great Lakes. The Great Lakes are 80% of the world's supply of fresh water. And all of the synthetic fertilizer is washing off. Of the world's supply? Yeah. No way. My mind is blown. Yeah. And yet we've got all this algal bloom problem because we're using genetically modified seeds. And consequently, the biology, there's it's non-existent in the soil. It's a, Melanie, you just wouldn't believe when instead of using synthetic fertilizers, we're using plants like clover and alfalfa and buckwheat and rye to harvest the sun's energy and you're feeding that biology and then they can break that food down into a form that the plant can pick it up. It's just unbelievable the difference. The good news is, is that we can turn this around. It's not a it's not the Titanic. It's not guaranteed that it's going to sink. We can turn this around. We can move it in the right direction. I believe we can provide enough food to feed the world. We've got to do it one bite at a time. It's how we make our decisions on where we buy. Build a relationship with a farmer. Go to the farmer's market. Have a connection. Ask them questions. How are they growing? How are they rebuilding the nutrients in the soil? How are they taking care of the people on those farms? It all works together. How are we taking care of the environment? We've got a pretty cool situation. Our neighbor produces hundreds of acres of popcorn. Well, the corn cob is actually a byproduct, and he's paying to haul it away into a landfill. We're now using the corn cobs instead of fossil fuels to heat an entire four-acre greenhouse. And it's it's just exciting when we work together that we can make such a big difference and an impact on our health and the health of the environment. And speaking of buying local, because one of the fascinating things that you dismantled a little bit in your book was you're talking about buying local and how that can be a little bit misleading sometimes because some, quote, local farms, they wouldn't necessarily have access to a, a consumer population that could even buy local from them. What is the best way to 
buy local and support all these different farms? Well, I guess that the my point in the book was this. Local defines distance. It does not define quality. If you can get something in your backyard local to you, by all means, do it. It's absolutely a smart move. But it doesn't necessarily mean that just because you're buying it local that it's more nutrient-dense, that it's better. So I would be cautious that it's not only local, but they're growing it, the farmer's growing it the right way. How are they rebuilding the soils? Are they using the chemicals? What are they doing? How are they? I think, you know, in the old days, a farmer's goal was to leave the land in better condition for future generations. And that's a good goal. And it's a noble goal. And it's still part of our goals. But, you know, there also was a saying that if you couldn't make it in the real world, at least you could go back and work on the farm. It was not a highly sought after position was to be a farmer. And I think that we have to be proud of the, the occupation that we have, but also create a situation that provides our team members with a proper level of not only respect, but pay and financial income that they can send the children, their children to the schools of their choice. They could have the homes of their choice. They can have the automobiles of their choice and they can follow their dreams. And if we don't pay a, at a level that supports those things, then the good people go someplace else. And we have some of the best and the most brilliant minds on this farm. It's unbelievable. The single greatest asset on our farm is not land. It's not tractors. It's not greenhouses. It's not barns. It's people. It's people. And we have some amazing people from all over the world. And they we have a world exchange program where students come in from all over. They bring ideas with them. They take ideas home. And we share knowledge. And it's an exciting thing. All of us are smarter than one of us. So, yeah, I mean, there's, some big, there's a lot of parts to it. It's exciting. Vegetables are the just so much fun. We had Ferran Adria here. He was the number one chef in the world at uh, El Bulli in Madrid. It's been about 10 years ago. A great friend of mine, God rest his soul, Charlie Trotter, brought him here. And he made a, made a little speech when he was here on the farm. And he said, we've explored every species of poultry, of beef, of lamb, of fish that exists in the world. Yet there are thousands of plants to be explored yet. Plants and plant-based and plant-forward. It's the future. It's not a bad thing. It's not like taking medicine. Vegetables are good. And so it's exciting to see the proteins taking smaller place on the plate and seeing more vegetable and even in vegetables, seeing them take the center of the plate. It's exciting to see what 11 Madison Park has done in New York City, Daniel Hume. You know, when they reopened, they opened as a whole plant forward restaurant. That's very, very exciting. The ripple effect of that's going to be profound. It's so incredible. And um, did you pioneer microgreens? We did. You know, with the help of Charlie Trotter, he had an amazing restaurant. He was about 20 to 30 years ahead of his time in Chicago at 816 West Armitage. And everybody was all wrapped up in, do you remember the mescaline? That was kind of the hot, hot wave at the time. And he was kind of over that. Everybody was using it. You could even find it in grocery stores and Walmarts. And he wanted something newer, sexier, better flavored. He was one of the first chefs in the world to have a prefix vegetable menu. And, you know, I think we're still a little lax in restaurants today with that. You know, my wife and I go out to eat and she wants a vegetarian dish. And she says, well, we can give you the chicken salad and we'll just take the chicken out. I think those days are over. I think that there's going to be more pressure to step up. Yes, basically, we're harvesting vegetables at a smaller stage. And what we're finding in our laboratory right here on the farm is, is that 
The smaller the vegetable is harvested, the higher the impact of nutrient and nutrient densities are. Soil-grown microgreens, and even a little bit bigger than a microgreen stage. Two of the big keys that I say is eat it raw and eat the rainbow. Get as much color into your diet as possible and, and as often as you can eat it raw. When we cook things, we're losing 50% of the nutritional value. When we overcook them, we're, learning, we're losing even more. You know, I look at some of the wonderful dishes that my grandmother prepared, and they were amazing. But she put greens and ham hock on and cook them all day long. And they were delicious and full of flavor. But my guess is there was not much nutritional value left to them. So al dente, or use the mandolin, cut it, eat it raw. Eat it raw and eat the rainbow is the way to go. I just think there's so much education that can happen here. Like for me, for example, I always assumed because I see the microgreens at the grocery store and I, and I would get them at the grocery store, but I always assumed naively that they were a species that like capped out at that size. And then I was, <laughs> and then I was hydroponically growing stuff, like I said, and I, I bought some quote microgreen seeds because that's the way they sell it. And then I was so confused because it kept growing like bigger. And I was like, wait, I thought it was supposed to like stop <laughs> and stay small. But I guess it just speaks to the fact that in theory, I mean, anything could be a microgreen almost. That's right. And, you know, it probably wouldn't develop into a kale because the way you plant microgreens is so much closer together because you don't need that space because you're harvesting them small. So you could pull those, you could theoretically pull those apart and then plant them into the ground and then with more space and they could grow out to a kale. I'm not knocking it, but I'm not a huge proponent of hydroponic. I was going to ask you about it. Yeah. Yeah. Fundamentally, I believe that soil, it's a more natural way to do it. If you think about water, it's a good carrier of E. coli and bacteria. Soil slows that down. But ultimately, we believe that the biology that's happening and taking place in that soil it's a, we're, we're seeing, we're doing some testing on it. We're finding hands down that we get a more nutritious plant, more nutritious vegetable when we grow in soil versus hydroponic. Now, am I knocking hydroponic? No, there's a lot of great growers out there doing really good things. And I am not, this is not, and I will never knock another farmer. It's just for us, we found that it appears to be more nutritious. There's some really good operations doing microgreens or doing other things in hydroponic. And I'm not knocking them at all. I, I love all my fellow lady and gentleman farmers out there across the world. So it's not a knock on them. But for us, we don't believe in the use of hydroponic. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine. The polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight. It's what they eat when they drink. But if you want all of the benefits of wine, the type of wine you're drinking is key. Conventional wine in the U.S. is often full of toxins. We're talking things like pesticides, mold, and additives, dyes, colorizers, artificial flavors. Have you even seen some wine that says vegan? That's because conventional wine isn't even necessarily vegan because of the additives. I am obsessed with a company called Dry Farm Wines. They're not a wine producer, but rather a wine investigator. They go all throughout Europe and they find the wineries practicing organic practices, and then they test those wines to make sure the wines are, wait for it, low alcohol, low sugar, free of toxins, free of mold, and truly supportive of your health. I'm obsessed with Dry Farm Wines. 
One of the most fun things for me as a wine lover is you get mixed boxes of wine and it introduces you to varietals from all over the world. The wines taste amazing and you can say goodbye to hangovers. If you think you can't drink wine, you've got to try Dry Farm Wines. I am obsessed. You can get a bottle for a penny. Yes, a penny. Just go to dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to claim your penny bottle. That's dryfarmwines.com slash Melanie Avalon. All right, now back to the show. I was going to ask you about that because, I mean, just sensibly thinking about it, it would completely make sense that they probably would not be as nutrient dense. I mean, you're speaking about the role of the soil. I think it's a good gateway farming technique for people like me living in an apartment because before I had my hydroponic units, I don't think I would have like grown stuff outside or anything like that. But then when I started growing indoors, it really opened my eyes. Now I feel like plants are alive and like I take care of them and it really inspired me. So I think, like I said, it's sort of like a nice gateway farming technique for, you know, people living in our apartment. Absolutely. You know, and I loved your example of thinking about eating the, the root of the cucumber. I can remember one day my dad and my wife were actually in the greenhouse and we were growing garlic and we were growing it from the top. And my dad always said that the best way to find out what's going on above the ground is to look at what's happening with the roots below the ground. And they pulled the garlic out of the ground and they looked at it and they looked at each other and they're like, we're growing for the wrong product. And so we grow garlic specifically for the roots. Is it garlicky tasting? Oh, they're delicious. And the chefs just have a blast with them. I've seen them make nests with them because they're so moldable and they're pure white. You bring them out of the ground and they're a little bit dirty and you can just take a gentle garden hose and clean them off and they come snow white and you can put them raw on a salad. You can, you can fry them off and they can be a garlic crouton, but they're just, they're, they're so diverse and so delicious, but I love your idea and your thought process of looking at that plant. I didn't realize until chef Jamie Simpson from the culinary vegetable Institute did some deep diving with the squash plant. Probably everybody that's gardening does a, a summer squash. Well, obviously you can pick those at all different stages of the plant's life, but also the stems of that and the leaves even are edible. Looking at that plant outside of what we're traditionally marketed to look at allows us to reduce waste. It gives us so much more diversity. It gives us a lot more fun to be able to play with vegetables. It's so amazing. And what about things like edible flowers? Yeah, you know, they've been grown for hundreds and hundreds of years. And I would not recommend going to a garden center and buying pansies and then thinking that you could just eat those because I don't think they're being grown or taken care of in a way that necessarily is considering edible flowers. If you're going to do edible flowers, do them from seed where you know that you're not putting anything on them that isn't healthy, but they can add so much brightness. You know, when we, when COVID hit a hundred percent of our business was going to restaurants and we, we thought that we could do more to help society by making our vegetables available to individuals at home. So we pivoted to a home delivery and at first, we're like, well, you know, this is a crisis. People are just trying to buy food. Do we want to put edible flowers in here? People aren't going to. And we had so many positive comments because we were sending things that were healthy direct from our farm. It was obviously supporting our team and keeping us going. You don't furlough a farm. When this hit, there was never a question that we were going to close the farm down. It's like walking away from a relationship and then coming back a year and a half later and saying, hi, honey, I'm home. You can't do it. It doesn't work. 
You know, so we have it. It's she's like a breathing, living thing. The farm, and there's an intimate relationship with the farmer and the farm and the land. We had to stay. We had to keep taking care of her, and we had to take care of our big family of 150 families here. So, pivoting to this home delivery, and we made the decision to put the edible flowers in. You wouldn't have believed the notes back that said, "You have no idea in a dark and dreary situation to get your salad greens, and then to be able to put the edible flowers on them and to eat them, and it just brightened up our whole day." So the edible flowers really are psychologically a fun thing, and they add some real flavor nuances that are incredible. The nasturtium is actually in the radish family, so you get a nice hint of bitey flavor to it that's kind of fun. One of my most treasured memories is when I was really little and I was at a restaurant with my grandmother and there were flowers on the food and she was eating them. And she told me, she said, whenever they bring a flower on the food at the restaurant, you can eat it. And that stuck with me. And I've just been so fascinated by it. And I'm starting to see like in Whole Foods now, they actually sell edible flowers. So I I do see it like kind of infiltrating into the culture, which is pretty cool. You compared it to like wine tasting, I think in your book with the flavors, which was very, very cool. Yeah, there's so many different nuances and flavors and colors that can match up. It's 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 just an exciting dimension to, to eating. Speaking of colors, something that, again, blew my mind and I learned about was how, like white asparagus or plants that are white. Could you tell listeners a little bit about why plants, certain plants can be white and what that means? Well, sure. You know, in Europe, they consider the green asparagus the asparagus for the pigs. I don't believe that's completely true. I love green asparagus, and we've grown it for years, and it's really good. The way that they produce white asparagus in Europe is they plant the rows of asparagus, and of course it's a root, and it pokes up through the ground. The crowns come up through. But they take and mound the soil up around so that the asparagus has to get 10 to 12 to 15 inches tall, and it's still all covered by soil because they're like hills or mounds. And then they dig into the side of the mound and pick the asparagus out. And because the, the dirt has been covering or the soil has been covering the asparagus, it's not exposed to chlorophyll, no sunlight. So it's white. And we actually grow ours entirely different. And you could do this in your garden, Melanie. We actually take black plastic and create little miniature greenhouses over the asparagus so that the we don't have to mound the dirt up and we go in with a coal miner's lamp on our forehead and pick it because it's completely dark in there. But you can do it with pea tendrils and it creates this beautiful, brilliant, golden sunrise gold color. And they just add a nice nuance of flavor and, of course, color. We eat with our eyes. And so chefs have constantly pushed us to be able to create colors and textures and flavors and shapes and sizes that are going to just help them blow people away when they put the food on the plate. And that's transcending now into the home delivery where people can actually go to farmerjonesfarm.com and order a box and it's delivered right to their home. And we're excited about Dr. Amy coming aboard because now we're going to kind of do a whole approach of the health and wellness and a kind of a healthy living style that'll be exciting. You'll see that sort of roll out in the next few months. So they don't get any exposure to sunlight? That's right. And so how many plants can do that? Uh, I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. That's a really great question. We continually try to find out. You know, we, we get an idea. We sometimes do these things by mistake. We harvest like our great-grandparents or grandparents did, you know, there's a reason fetch, some vegetables are called winter vegetables. If you go 56 inches deep into the soil, 
you stay 56 degrees year round. So it's hard for us because every we can go to a refrigerator today and we just take so many things for granted, but it hasn't been that far back in our history that refrigeration didn't exist. So a root cellar, maybe some of the listeners can remember going to a grandparent's home and they went into the basement and there was one room in the basement that didn't have a poured floor. It was a dirt floor because they knew that that temperature would stay cool and it was a way to be able to keep vegetables during the wintertime. So we've replicated root cellar conditions. So we harvest carrots and beets and rutabagas and parsnips and salsa fee and celery root and store those in October and November in a root cellar-like condition. And then we can sell out of those during the wintertime so that we've got good winter vegetables to sell all winter. But we had some beets in the root cellar and they were stacked. There were bushels and bushels in these bins, 20 bushels to a bin. And we didn't get all of them sold and we pulled them out in March. And we noticed that there was enough strength in the beet because these were big beets. Some of them were not only as big as a hardball, but as big as a softball. There was a lot of energy in the beet. And that plant had started to grow just like a potato. If it gets, it starts growing and shooting a sprout in the, in the root cellar or in the potato sack. Well, this beet started to grow out of the top. And because there was no light, you had this beautiful, brilliant, burgundy red veins and then the outer leaves were this majestic sunset yellow and so the red veins going through the yellow leaves it just was so sexy and so chefs were just so we call it beet blush and so we grow it now we actually have built out it started as a mistake growing it in the dark we were just storing them there and they started from the energy of that beet growing tops. And we're like, well, how can we replicate that? And so we build out a whole growing section and we put a, a row of beets in each week. So we've got them coming. And then when the chef orders them, we can cut them and send them to them. And I mean, if you can imagine doing a beet dish and then putting one of these beet blush leaves on it, it really pops a plate. Have you checked the nutrient effect of the plants that are grown in the dark? Oh my gosh, that is a great idea. We have not done that. I like how you think, Melanie. We, you know, we need you on the farm for. Can, can, we've got an extra room here, and we even have indoor plumbing. Why don't you just move on out here, and we'll put you to work on the farm? I like your thought process. I might have to take you up on that. Well, I was just thinking because. I would imagine the first thing you would think would be maybe there would be a decrease because not having the sun, but then you would wonder if maybe it's there's some other effect where it gets some other phytonutrient or something to deal with growing without sunlight. No, that's a really, really great idea. I think we'll we'll do that test. I will I will let you know on that offline that's a i you have the you have what we call the inquisitive gene we love the inquisitive gene at the chef's garden it's what makes it fun for us every day here i think that's the reason probably your book resonated with me so much because like you said i mean it's the way i think too and i was just so excited and i learned so much and that's why like i said i think i think it should be a required reading Another question I had about your your growing practices, because you were talking about how you grow without pesticides and things like that, but you talk about the role of beneficials. I was wondering if you could enlighten listeners about that process. Yeah. You know, keep in mind, we have people on the farm that can talk probably way more intelligently than I can about this. I'm a dirt farmer, and we have three scientists on staff, but I don't know if you're old enough to remember, but on Sunday night here on the farm, you know, 
we weren't exposed to a lot of the outside world. We didn't have the money for it. We lived pretty close to home. But there was on Sunday night, there was a show called Mutual of Omaha's Wild Kingdom. And do you remember it? I don't. Yeah, you're half my age or less. Well, it was a show and Mutual of Omaha is an insurance company, but they would put on the show and it would take you to parts of the world that we had never seen as kids on the farm over to Africa. And you saw herds of giraffes and elephants and gazelle. And of course, it was pretty graphic. It showed a lion tracking down or a cougar tracking down a herd of gazelle. And which gazelle did it harvest? The weaker one or the oldest one or one that was lame. And the reason I tell you all that part of it is to get to this. Plants operate, insects operate under the same premise as a cougar tracking down a gazelle. The insect goes to the weakest plants. And so we believe that the best defense is a good offense. Healthy soil, healthy vegetables, healthy people, healthy environment. If we can put healthy seeds into that and get them a good start, it actually tastes so healthy, so sweet, that the insect won't go to it. So that's really kind of exciting. We have even taken a section of the farm and planted and just disregarded them and didn't take care of them. It created a patch of weak plants and let the insects go to them and so that they would stay away from the healthy ones. But beneficials, we can actually purchase. There's companies that make a business out of selling the beneficials and they come on this yellow sticky tag and we put them in the greenhouse and they hatch out and they'll attack the larvae of the insects like aphids and they'll kill the population. They won't kill an adult aphid, but they will kill, they will attack to their larvae and wipe out the population of aphids that are attacking the plant. So beneficials can really be, no pun intended, beneficial to controlling the insect issues without using the chemical. Do we have all that figured out? No, but we're, it's really exciting to see that work. But I think that the biggest thing, we'll even take, we have some equipment that will sort the weight of the seed. If you can imagine, we get a five-pound bag of seeds in from a seed company, let's say, hypothetically, carrot seeds, about 150,000 seeds in five pounds. So they're pretty small. They're smaller than a BB. Maybe the listeners know, maybe you've planted carrot seeds, so you know how small they are. We run them through a gravity machine, and it, it separates the seeds by weight. And we separate into five different weak, five different weight categories. What does the weight of the seed mean? The weight of the seed, there's a direct correlation between the weight of the seed and the health of the endosperm. And we found that the healthier the endosperm, the better start that it can get. So if we get the soils in balance and get all the nutrients there and then put a healthy seed into that, boom, it just takes off and it grows and it's too healthy and the insect doesn't want it. Some of those lighter seeds, we may just pack those up and send them back to the seed company and say, these seeds are unacceptable. We can't accept these because they're, the endosperm is too weak and we're going to have to send them back to you. In many cases with seed companies, there's no standard for a farmer to be able to grade the quality of the seed. But by doing this weight, we can weigh them out through gravity. We can determine which seeds are healthier. We'll take those to test out that theory when you have five different sizes and put them in a Petri dish and sprout them out. And nine times out of 10, sure enough, the heavier seed is the healthier seed. So we want a healthy seed, healthy soil, 
And that really is a key to helping defend against the insects and the disease issues. Is the seed weight very specific to the variety? Yes. Not the variety as much as type. Yeah. I mean, a, a squash seed and a carrot seed are entirely different. But like red carrot, orange carrot, yellow carrot, white carrot, peachy pink carrot, no. There's not a lot of difference or disparity within the, the weights of those different varietals of carrots. It's interesting. Carrots, you know, we for thousands of years, we only ate the top of the carrot. Now we only eat the bottom. The top is full of nutrient. You can actually exchange the carrot top, you know, if you're doing uh, anything with a salad or uh, if you're making uh, the basil I can't think of the word right now. Uh, help me out. With basil, like for the salad? No, not for a salad. When you, it's just, it's right there. It's a so simple of a dish that we make. We use a basil. Oh, well, I can't think of it. Like a pesto? Yeah, that, that's, I, I don't know why. I had a brain freeze right at that moment. But yeah, you could, with a basil pesto, you can actually exchange the carrot top out, run it through the blender, and you can make an amazing pesto with the carrot top. We don't have to waste any of this. And we talk about that in the book, even the trimmings. Make a vegetable stock. It's amazing. We can extract everything. And again, celebrate that vegetable plant by using every part of the plant. I remember um, I remember one time I was going to the grocery store and I specifically wanted the leaves on the top of the beets and I was trying to find them and they had cut all the leaves off. And so I went up to the guy and I was like, where do I get the beets with the leaves? And he looked at me like I was crazy. I was like, I just want that. Because <laughs> I had bought some beets before and I had tasted the leaves and it was so good. It was like salty. So yeah, that was... <laughs> I was like, oh, maybe I'm crazy. <laughs> no, you're not. I'm really glad you brought that up because I don't know whether any of the listeners have been are in tune enough with their bodies, and I'm sure some of them are nodding their heads, yes. But I think that if we listen to our body, it craves certain minerals. And there are there actually are more nutrients in the top than in the bottom of the beat. And so I love that you were seeking those out. And it could have been that you were so in tuned with listening to your body that it was telling you. I don't know if you've ever experienced this, but there's times when my body says, I need kale. I need Swiss chard. I need beets. I literally felt like my body said, I don't know if I tasted them before, but my body was like, I need beet greens. And so I went to the store to buy them. <laughs> they were not there. I, I think that that's really good that you were, you were there craving that. Follow those. I would encourage listeners to to follow those cravings because your body's telling you something. Again, I read this in National Geographic and it really, it always stuck with me, but there were women and they were eating soil. And it seemed so abstract to me at the time, but, you know, as we've done more deep dives into the mineral deficiencies that we're finding in vegetables, their bodies were craving minerals and instinctively they knew that those minerals were in the soil and they were trying to fulfill something within their deficiency of their body by eating the soil. Now, I can guarantee you the soil didn't taste good, but they're, they were listening to their body. And I really encourage listeners to really be in tuned with yourself. And when it tells you you need beet tops, when you need kale, listen to it and follow that advice that your body's telling you. Instinctively, it'll tell you what you need in many cases. Hi, friends. Okay, so 
I'm a little bit embarrassed because I've been talking for so long about red light and near infrared therapy, which is so, so important. However, I kind of left out something really important about light. So as you guys know, I've been talking about red light and near infrared for so long. And at the same time during the day, I was using a bright, sad light. So it's those white lights that help with waking you up, help with your circadian rhythm. They're used to combat mood issues and depression. So I have a really bright white one of those at my desk. A few things about that. I knew it helped wake me up and kept me stimulated, but I wasn't sure if it had any detrimental effects using it. And then two, I was also wondering if by just focusing on red and near-infrared light, was I somehow missing something in the full spectrum of light? Guess what? I was. And guess what? I found the solution. And guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, it was not doing my health many services. There is only one company I have found, or I guess that found me, that makes a full spectrum white light device. So the Soul Light Systems include the fullest spectrum of visible and invisible near-infrared light with traces of UV light. Yep, that's right, because you need all of that as well. Don't worry, it's not an exuberant amount that's going to cause a problem. It's just a tiny little dose that your body actually needs. You can use these lights to fix your circadian rhythm and properly stimulate your brain's suprachiasmatic nucleus or SCN in a way that it was supposed to be stimulated. It's kind of like the natural spectral diet because yes, you may be suffering from malillumination. Did you know that your entire bloodstream actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time. That's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love Soulshine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near-infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful for my sleep, for my stress, for my metabolism, for my immunity, for my health, so many things. They have so many different device options. They have one that I love that kind of looks like a juve and I sit it on my desk and it has options for the full spectrum light, which is that bright white light, as well as an ear infrared option. So what I do is I do a session of the full spectrum light in the morning and then I run the near infrared to help counteract the negative blue light around me. They also have stands with bulbs that you can get. I've been using some of those on my plants. I am just so grateful that Ken at Soulshine found me because I was missing out on such a key aspect of light and I had no idea. And you can get 10% off at melanieavalon.com slash soulshine. That's S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E. 
with the code Melanie Avalon. So melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E with the code Melanie Avalon for 10% off. It's really helped my mood, my energy, my sleep, so many things. I think you guys will love it. So again, go to melanieavalon.com slash soulshine, S-O-L-S-H-I-N-E and use the coupon code Melanie Avalon to get 10% off site-wide. And we'll put all this information in the show notes. I was just reading yesterday, and I think you talk about it in your book as well, but the uprise of that disease that happened when we switched to eating corn because of the lack of niacin, pellagra, was that what it was called? And I just thought that was so fascinating how it took forever for um, people to realize what was the cause of that disease, but it was from not being able to have niacin, I think, in a in a corn diet. Exactly. And there's so many of those things that are, there's a cause and effect. Yeah. Question about pollination and hybridization and things like that. So I've been growing different cucumber varieties and I have to hand pollinate them. What I think about every time, because I sort of just touch all the flowers of all the different plants. And so am I going to create a, like a hybrid species? So like, can any plant create a hybrid with another plant or only certain plants or how does that even happen? Oh boy, you're getting into science that's pretty deep for me. Okay. We don't I guess more general question is just like hybrid plants in general. Like do you guys make hybrid plants? Is it something that's of interest? Like can it easily happen? Hybrid we don't make them. We believe there's a whole nother business that and, and certainly there are some great growers out there doing hybrids. In fact, we're working with some small scale growers in California and trying to support their work. Like many things, there used to be thousands of seed companies, family-owned seed companies, and one by one by one, they were, they've were they been gobbled up, and they take the top five selling items, and they abandon the rest. But there's some guys that are taking, of course, you know, for the last 20 years now, we've been excited about heirloom tomatoes and some of the great things that some of those varieties offer. But the reason they were abandoned in the first place, in many cases, because they didn't have the disease resistance or they didn't have the yield. And so they're crossing the hybrid or they're crossing the heirlooms with varieties that have some of the characteristics that do resist the disease and can grow a little bit better. And it's been really exciting. There's nothing wrong with hybridization. It's been done for hundreds and thousands of years. If you hypothetically had two rows of two different types of of plants in your garden and you hand selected, let's just stick with tomatoes because we're talking about tomatoes, and you pick the characteristics of the best tomato in one row and you pick the characteristics of the best one in that one, you could create a hybrid. It would take three to five to six years to get those characteristics honed out. So hybridization is not, not a bad thing at all. It's good. The genetic modification is kind of where there's a it crosses over a line for us. Now, if we had longer time and we could go a little bit further on that, genetic modification in itself can be used for good things to genetically modify in a deserted, deserted area or where there's no water, where you can genetically modify a plant that could potentially grow without as much water. But the way it's being used commercially in the United States today to be able to resist chemicals so that that plant can withstand a chemical we don't believe in the use of them, and we don't use any genetic modification for that reason. And for listeners, I'll just again refer them to your book because it's such a resource for 
just so many things. Like if they want to grow at home, oh, and then the recipes. How did you come up with all of these recipes? Are they all recipes from the farm? What's their story? Well, Chef Jamie Simpson is a chef. We built a facility at the farm called the Culinary Vegetable Institute. The original vision of it was for chefs to be able to come, bring their culinary teams, go into the fields with us, harvest product, come back in a test kitchen and play and experiment and create recipes. Jose Andreas was here two years ago and he brought 16 of his staff and they they did a whole vegetable book while they were here in three days. They had the writer with them and the photographers here with them and 16 chefs with them. But Chef Jamie Simpson spent three years of his life. He came to us. He was working at a restaurant called the Charleston Grill down in Charleston, South Carolina. And he had seen our product there coming into the restaurants. And he's like, I've got to go find this place. And so he came and he stayed. And he's been here now going on eight or nine years. And he's the chef liaison. He talks with the chefs when they come in. We have about 600 visiting chefs per year. They come in and we he gets to work with them and help them do menu development for their restaurants. And it's a symbiotic relationship of chef and farmer working together. So he developed those. A lot of those are ideas that he's seen from somebody else and created his own. But really, this is Chef Jamie Simpson's work uh, at the Culinary Vegetable Institute. And one of the things we did, because the chefs weren't coming in during the COVID was we pivoted to an Airbnb. So people can now actually come to the Culinary Vegetable Institute and they have run of the whole place because, you know, one of the concerns, like when we're traveling, is you go someplace and you're concerned about a hotel and the other people and the exposure they've had. When you get the Airbnb at the Culinary Vegetable Institute, there's only one room to it. You can do a chef's picnic basket and we'll curate a basket around your particular likes and stay a day or two days or three days. We had a couple from Charleston that actually came on their honeymoon and spent their entire honeymoon here at the Culinary Vegetable Institute in the Airbnb. And we curated, uh, they wanted to work on the farm for the week. And so they had a great week and it was what they wanted to do for their honeymoon. It was pretty cool. Well, I just love how you're making this so immersive for, you know, real people. So for people who want to support this whole movement that you are spearheading and encouraging, so people shopping, because I know we talked about like shopping local and the questions to ask farmers, but if people are going to shop, you know, at conventional grocery stores, like, you know, there are big brands that say like organic and stuff like that, like, does that make a difference or is that still the conventional system? Like how can people, you know, do the best that they can to support all of this? Right. Well, again, I can't speak to what any other farmer is doing. We have done testing on organic, on commercially grown. We're not finding any significant difference in organic or inorganic. I think that even if you go back to before the organic thing was a hot buzzword, building the soil, taking care of the soil, whether that's organic or inorganic, ultimately is going to be what drives the nutrient and the nutrient density levels. Is the soil healthy? Is the biology alive? Can it break the, the food down to a form that the plant can pick it back up? I would just encourage listeners to develop relationships, reconnect with where their food is coming from. Know thy grower and talk to them. If they're doing things the right way, they're going to invite you to their farm. They're going to want to talk to you about the way they're farming. 
do we have it all figured out? No, neither does anybody else. But you can tell those farmers that are on the right track. It's difficult when you're going to a grocery store because they're bringing product in to supply the demand. If they need a thousand cases of beets and one one producer has 200 and one has 50 and one has 90, there's no way of knowing thy grower when you can go to a farmer's market and develop a relationship or you can buy it online and you can read and understand and and understand the philosophies of the way that they're farming and trying to farm, I think that that really it's worth our time and investment. We're going to spend the money with, you know, with pharmaceutical drugs to patch us up if we're not eating right. So spend the money, spend the time, invest in yourself, take the time to, to know thy farmer and know where your food is coming from and how it's being grown, whether it's a pasture raised or whether it's being fed, whether the animals and the livestock are being fed in a stockyard or whether they're able to graze. And where's the fish coming from? Take the time to do the due diligence to understand, you know, you are what you eat. You are what the plant eats. You are what the animal eats. It's so critical. It may seem like a big overhaul in the beginning, but once you do do that research and find the sourcing of, you know, online companies or local farms, then then you can just adapt, you know, a new system and a new way of going about it. Well, that's right. It becomes easy. It's just second nature. And then you can tell somebody else about it. And then you can tell somebody else and somebody else. And we can make a difference. We can turn this thing around. The movement has begun. Plant-based, plant-forward. It's the future. How do you feel? Because I have done a lot of episodes on regenerative agriculture that are also inclusive of animals. Do you think that could be part of the future as well? Or do you see it more as a primarily plant-based? Oh, absolutely. Look, I'm not sitting here promoting. I like a piece of good red meat or a chicken or a fish as well as the next person. But I think that those animals should be responsibly raised. I liked, would like to see us eating smaller portions in proteins and allowing the vegetables. The vegetables day is now. The vegetable can take center stage and be the main ingredient on the plate, and we eat a smaller portion of protein. It used to be that it was this huge piece of meat and a little bit of vegetable on the side as a garnish. Reverse it. It's going to have profound effects on your health and your life and your physical and your spiritual and your mental attitude and psyche. It really does make a difference. And I was thinking, because it says in your, your bio that was sent over that you'll never say your, your favorite vegetable. And I was thinking about that because there's not one vegetable that has all the nutrients that we would need ever. And I think in a way, if there was, maybe that would be in theory, somebody's favorite because it would satisfy everything. But, you know, with rotating nutritional needs and like, there's a reason that we crave different things at different times, I think. So, but to get listeners maybe hooked, what would be some exciting vegetables that they might not have tried that you would encourage them to try? Well, you know, I guess the reason I don't like to answer it is because when somebody asks me what my favorite vegetable is, I want to know what season it is. When it's asparagus season, I think we should eat asparagus three times a day. And when it's out of season, we should lust for it for nine more months. Right now, my favorite go-tos are the winter radishes. We have one called a lime radish and a watermelon radish and a black radish, a ninja radish. And I love to take the mandolin and cut those super thin and do an overnight quick pickle with any vinegar you have in the kitchen and a little bit of sugar and eat them chilled. 
that's a go-to for me. But you don't have to put the vinegar. You don't have to put the sugar. You don't have to do the overnight quick pickle. Do a mandolin cut on them and put them on your salad. It gives you color. It gives you crunch and texture and flavor and a little bit of bite. And it's it just puts a little bam in your salad. It's just so much fun with the winter radishes. Well, listeners, now you can see why I was so, so obsessed with this book because this energy and all of this is in there. And I can't recommend enough that listeners check it out. The last question that I usually ask the guests every single time, it's because I realize more and more each day how important mindset is. So what is something that you're grateful for? Family, for sure. Waking up every morning, I'm grateful to have a crack at it every single day. I'm grateful for God in my life. I believe we all have a stronger power, whatever that is, and to have faith in something that's constant. I know that's three things, and you asked me for one. Grateful that I got to be raised on a farm. I'm grateful that I got to work with my father every single day for 40 years. We lost him August 4th, 2020. I'm grateful that he's still here with us every place we look. All the work that we do, we feel his presence here with us all the time. Life is good. We're going to get thrown curves. It's been a tumultuous 20 months. There's silver linings to everything and we've got to look for them. And actually just speaking to that, something similar like you, I I also wear basically almost the same thing every day, but why do you wear those overalls? Very few books that I read in high school, I thought I was really smart by using the uh, Cliff Notes. You probably don't remember Cliff Notes, but it was a... I do. And Dark Notes, yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it was this like yellow paperback thing and you could read it in about an hour that would basically, we thought we were smart that we could get a B in creative writing by reading the cliff notes instead of reading the book. It was really not very brilliant of me. Let's just put it that way. But one of the books that I did not read the cliff notes on, it was so captivating to me was The Grapes of Wrath by John Steinbeck. Little did I know at 17 years old when I read The Grapes of Wrath and saw the tragedy and the plight of the farmers during the Dust Bowl and in the 30s and how desperate they got. If anybody is bored and want to stay in their pajamas on a rainy or a snowy cold winter day, get Netflix. You can still get Grapes of Wrath. It's a black and white. I don't know whether listeners can remember, but Henry Fonda is the father of Jane Fonda. He was, at 21 years old, he was the main character in The Grapes of Wrath. But again, as I alluded to, you know, there used to be a saying, well, if you can't make it in the real world, at least you can go back and work on the farm. So these farmers, if you can picture, lost their farms and everything that they owned was loaded on an old truck, three generations in one old truck and the family dog and maybe the cow. And they were just trying to find a place to work and to start over. And large ranches would take advantage of the fact that these folks were desperate for work. And the word would get out that there was an orange crop to harvest or a peach crop or an apple crop. And, and these families would come and groves, just hundreds of cars with six or eight or 10 people on each truck, just desperate for a place to work and to earn a living and to make a dollar and to get a hot shower and to have something to eat. And there's a scene on a Saturday night at one of these ranches where they were paid a dollar a day to harvest. They were charged a half a dollar for a camp and a hot meal and a shower. And, you know, they barely, they were almost working and owing at the end of the day. But there's a scene, despite how broken down and how much their hardships were, they had a square dance. And their overalls that the men wore were worn and they were torn, but they were clean. 
and they had clean white shirts on and they had a red bow tie or a bow tie. It wasn't red specifically, but they had a bow tie on and a white shirt and a pair of worn, in many cases, torn, clean overalls. And despite whatever we're given in this world, despite our hardships, we can always maintain our pride. We can always maintain our integrity. And I'm proud to be a farmer. And for every person that's ever dreamed of being on a farm, for every person, for any person that's ever remembered living on a farm and then moving off of it or losing a farm or wanting to be a farmer, every single day of my life, I wear a pair of overalls and a white shirt and a red bow tie. I wore them to church on Sunday. I've worn them to funerals. I've married several people. I have my license to marry. I've conducted several services. Look, there's an old saying on the farm that you can never make a silk purse out of a sow's ear. I could never put a three-piece suit on and look nearly as handsome as some of the gentlemen that can put a three-piece suit on and carry that off. So I'm going as a farmer, and I'm proud to be a farmer. Not a boastful proud, but a, I'm proud of my occupation and maintain my my integrity of going as a farmer and being having clean overalls and clean white shirt, red bow tie every day of my life. I'll be buried in them. I have 18 pairs, 18 pairs of overalls, 18 white shirts, 18 red bow ties. I've been to some pretty fancy events in New York City. Guys are in tuxedos, the lady in some beautiful evening gowns, and the guy will come up and whisper in my ear and say, gosh, you sure look comfortable in those. I wish I could get away with that. Well, thank you so much, Farmer Lee Jones. I am just so honored and grateful for what you're doing and to speak with you now and to meet you. You're, you have the most beautiful, sparkling soul and you're changing the world. And I just can't express enough my gratitude. So thank you. How can listeners best follow your work? What links would you like to put out there? Well, Melanie, thank you so much for having me on. I've thoroughly enjoyed our time together today. Instagram, we would love to hear from you folks, Farmer Lee Jones. And when you pull it up and you see a guy with a red bow tie and a white shirt and a pair of overalls on the picture, you'll know it's me. But Farmer Lee Jones on Instagram, uh, Farmer Jones Farm at the Chef's Garden for being able to get vegetables at home, the Culinary Vegetable Institute. You can go to Airbnb and find the Culinary Vegetable Institute if you'd like to come and do a farm stay with us. We'd love to hear from your listeners, and Melanie, please stay in touch with us, and please come and visit us. We would be honored to have you here. Now, I will tell you, after three days, you're no longer a guest, and we will put you to work. Okay. I'm, I'm down. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> thank you. Um, well, thank you so much, and hopefully we can bring you back on the show again in the future, because this has just been amazing. That would be Fabulous. And I just wish you the happiest and healthiest, most prosperous 2022 that you can imagine. You too. Yeah. For listeners, this is my last recording of this year. And what a way to have, I mean, thank you. This is like the most perfect last recording of this year. I think it might've been my favorite of the whole year. So happy 2022 to you. Yay. Thank you. Eat your vegetables. Yes. <laughs> Bye. Thank you so much for listening to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. For more information, you can check out my book, What Win Wine, Lose Weight and Feel Great with Paleo-Style Meals, Intermittent Fasting, and Wine, as well as my blog, MelanieAvalon.com. Feel free to contact me at podcast at MelanieAvalon.com. And always remember, you got this.